You guys ready? Ready to go this morning? Yeah, all right, good. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going I'm to start a statement, and then I just need you to help me with the middle and just say, until, all right? And some of these might hit home for you. Some of them might. I'm talking about how the easy way out does not always work best. Like, it's easier to sleep in than wake up early and go to the gym until, 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 until you can't tie your shoes. And in case you're not there yet, the warning sign is when you have to make a noise just to reach down to get to your shoes. Some of us can relate. It's easier to eat junk food all the time until you have to buy a new wardrobe. Some of us can relate. It, it's easier to skip brushing your teeth until you go to the dentist. Ooh, there's some scary memories, right? It's easier to spend your money until you need to retire. Ooh, some people might feel that one differently than others. It's easier to skip date night. You end up with a date with divorce court, right? The easy way out is not always the correct way out. And also, just pre-sermon side note stuff. If, it's, if you're married and it's been more than three months since you had a date night, the warning light on the dashboard is illuminated. If it's been more than a year since you've had a night away with your spouse, the warning on the dashlight is illuminated. Take care of the things that are matter. I understand it's difficult, but the easy way is not always the right way, which is really a big part of the, the beginnings of the story we're looking at this week. We're in a series called The Story, and it's a 30-week trip from Genesis through Revelations. And this week we're on Ruth. And you're going to do just fine if you haven't been here for the past part of it. But I want to tell you, this will be of great benefit to you if you jump in with us where we are and continue forward. I'm going to give you some context and we'll get into a couple specific passages. But chapter one of Ruth, it starts off with Ruth. I'm sorry. It starts off with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, making a decision that because of a famine in the promised land in Israel, they're going to move to a foreign land. They're going to move to Moab because the grass is greener on the other side of the border. But context that's important to this situation is that God has told Israel that as long as you follow my ways, I will make this land fruitful. It'll be flowing with milk and honey. You will have plenty as you stay in relationship with me. But if you begin to follow other gods, I will bring famine. I will expel you from the land. You will be defeated by others as punishment to show you that you're spiritually straying so that you come back to me. All right, that's the arrangement that's set up. So if there's famine in the land of Israel, there is a reason for it that is not just natural, but it is supernatural, it is spiritual. And God allows famine to begin there because Israel is moving away from God. And so as God is bringing this discipline into Israel, this one particular family, Elimelech and Naomi, decide we're going to move into Moab. As they do that, they're seeking greater financial stability and prosperity but they know that they're leaving the land of God's blessing. And as you read some, some of the ancient translations, some, some of the translations from Hebrew into Aramaic, where they expound on some of these things, uh, it actually describes this and it says, 
that Elimelech transgressed against God and moved to Moab because that was the understanding and the intention that for an Israelite to leave the promised land would be a transgression against God. And so they were gonna take the easy way out of the famine and they were gonna live amongst those who served and worshiped false and pagan gods. They moved out of the place where God had them to be and tragedy began to strike. And, and we think of the story of Ruth and many of you guys have maybe seen the Christian movies about Ruth, the, the basically rom-coms, sappy romantic films where they talk about the love story between Ruth and Boaz. But I think that our experience with this story misses the gravity and the difficulty and the heartache of where they were at, at the beginning of this encounter. Yeah, and, and culturally, you've got to make sure you have a couple of grips on a, on a few things. And I talked about this before, but to remind you, women in this time, they weren't allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They could not physically defend themselves. And if someone did them wrong because they couldn't t- testify in court, they, they were in a very vulnerable situation. And so when Naomi moved to Moab and was treated as a foreigner, and, and then her husband, Elimelech, passed away. But she had two sons and the two sons could work and provide and protect her. And while she was there, her two sons made the decision to take wives from Moab, which was restricted. And they weren't, and, and as a good Hebrew woman, she would have said, no, she said, no, you can't. We have to go back home for you to find a wife. We don't really have information about how that interaction went, but we do know that, they, that her sons took Mo, Moabites as wives and then her sons passed away as well. And she finds herself in this incredibly vulnerable position where she does not have someone who can legally own property. She does not have someone who can provide for her. And she does not have someone who can protect her. And then she begins to hear the murmurings that the famine is ending. And it's been over 10 years that she's been in Moab. And she makes a decision, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back home. I'm gonna go back to the promised land. And her, her two daughter-in-laws have been taking, taking care of her. And we're going to pick up in chapter one, starting at verse eight. And we'll put this up on the screen, screen as I read it. And it says, and Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And to verse 14, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And, and, And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord, Jehovah, may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. I don't know if you're reading that and your mind kind of goes to the same place, but what kind of mother-in-law was Naomi? I mean, did you kind of think about that as you read this? How good of a mother-in-law was Naomi to Ruth that Ruth was like, I'm not gonna go back to my family. I'm not gonna go back to my people. I am gonna stay with you. 
And I'm sure that it had a combination to do with Ruth loving her husband so much that she loved uh, her mother-in-law like that. But Naomi must have been something special. And in our, our culture's mindset, when we talk about mother-in-laws, it's usually very negative because what we enjoy doing is we like to talk about how someone else is to us and how it does not meet our expectation how they're not, what they're doing is not good enough for us because we're so distinguished and we're so intelligent and we're so smart and we have it all together and we do right by everyone else all the time. But when other people try to do right to us, it never seems to measure up. And so we, we criticize, but I want to tell you one of the encouragements that I'd give you from the type of mother-in-law that Naomi was to Ruth, that Ruth said, I am going to live my life with you, is you have control over what kind of family member you are to other people. You don't get to control how they are to you, but you get to determine whether you will be the kind of blessing that other people in your family will say, I will count the cost and be close to you because you have done so much for me, because you have loved me so well, because you have prayed for me so well, because you have spoken truth to me so well, because you've believed in me and invested in me. I want to be with you. And I want to tell you, the evidence points towards that Naomi was a kind, loving mother-in-law because the cost that Ruth was willing to pay to go back to Israel was huge. And in fact, it's almost, the situation is almost the exact inverse of what happened with Naomi. I want you to see the contrast to the situation. Naomi and Elimelech moved to Moab to pursue better standard of living. They were, they were exiting a famine and they had a family they had pretty much all the things that you'd want, had two sons who would be heirs, and they left God's blessing to go pursue greater conditions of living. But Ruth, on the other side, she's from Moab. To go to Israel, she would be treated as an outcast. To stay in Moab, she would live in her parents' house. She would be provided for. She would be treated with respect. She would probably have, quote, a better pursuit of happiness than she would in Israel with Naomi. Ruth didn't have job prospects in Israel. She didn't have family members who would hire her. And in fact, her standard of living, which was set forth in Leviticus, she would be allowed to go and pick from the edges of the field that would be left unharvested by the Israelite farmers. And that is where she would get her provision and her food. Ruth was signing up for difficulty by following Naomi. Naomi went to Moab to escape difficulty. And it's almost the inverse part of the situation. And for Ruth being a Moabite who grew up following other gods, I want you to make sure you pay attention to her, her words in verse 17 of chapter one when she's speaking to Naomi and she says, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord, and the term there is Jehovah, the name for God, not a generic name for God, but Jehovah, thus may the Lord do to me worse. She is calling out on the name of the Lord to hold her accountable to the words that she say, said. From being in Naomi's family, she gleaned the wisdom about the truth of who God was. And she was willing to pay the costs of that kind of life, of being treated as an outcast to go and be with Naomi. There was faith inside of her at this point. She was living her life in a way that is admirable. And so she went with her back to Israel, leaving her family and her foreign gods 
behind. And so she entered into the promised land empty-handed with low expectation of what was, what was ahead. And so, and so it kind of began in chapter one, verse 19. It says, so they both, <clears throat> Naomi and Ruth, went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? It's been more than 10 years. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Now, you know this and you've seen this. You've probably even felt this, that when you experience trauma in your life, there is something within your psychology that begins to question your self-worth. Whether it was your choice or not, whether it was a decision that you made, that when trauma comes into your life, there's something that begins to whisper inside of you that says, you're just not good enough. There's an attack that occurs on your identity when you walk through trauma. And I wanna make sure that you understand that, that as we study scripture together, there is one Jesus in scripture who says what is right and does what is right all the time. And that is Jesus himself. But as we see other people like Naomi in here, there's times where she gives terrible advice and she says things that are absolutely wrong. She should not be changing her name to Mara, though she's gone through difficulty and trauma. And in fact, if you look back to some of the, the, the words that she gave to Ruth and to Orpah, she, she said, return, don't follow me, go back to your families and to your gods. That is terrible advice from a believer in Jehovah to tell someone to go home and return to their gods. But when you walk through trauma, broken times can create broken theology in our life. When we experience pain, there, there will be part of us that allows our experience with pain to dictate things about what we know to be true about God and what we know to be true about ourselves. And I wanna, I wanna reawaken you, I wanna remind you to the fact that even if this season has been terrible for you, God is still good. Even if it's felt like everything has been coming apart, either from COVID or the hurricane or things happening in your career and happening in your family, if you've walked through a season of famine and a season of difficulty, God still has things ahead of you. And even for someone like Naomi who, who would say, this might be my fault because I left the promised land. God provides a way back home. God opens doors. He positions things even through generations to give us opportunities to get back to where we should be in our life, even if we've missed opportunities for blessing. Because one of the, the next things that we see in this passage, we get introduced to a person named Boaz. And what we see in the passage is that Boaz has been working the land even through the the famine, and he's described as someone who had great wealth. And I wanna make sure that you see the disparity of mindsets and results. Let's take the easy way out. Let's leave the lands during the famine, during the bad times, during the tough stuff. Let's go over to Moab where the grass is greener and we'll have greater stability there. That was one mindset and it ended up in tragedy. The other mindset with Boaz who stayed in the promised land and he continued to farm and he acquired great wealth. And, and there's a mentality that says, if, it, if it's difficult, find an easy way out. And we see that in so many marriages, don't we? 
Once things get difficult, once things aren't, aren't happening as easy as they once were, we search for, we know the grass looks greener over on the other side, over that other relationship with that other coworker, with that other person that I know. Everything is just so easy with them. It's probably easy with them because you haven't got to spend as much time with them yet to ruin that relationship too. When you're making dumb choices, it creates difficult results. And when things get difficult because of our dumb choices, the correct response is not to run from the situation, but to understand, to learn, to grow, and to work through it. God will call you to work through a season that might feel like a famine season. I am working and I am, I am planting seeds. I am doing what I'm supposed to do, but it is not harvesting anything yet. Harvest will come in time. And the famine season is where you show your faithfulness. And you'll see God's faithfulness on the other side of it. But it's not always going to be easy. But I'll tell you what, the people who stick with it, the people who stay where they're supposed to be working, they will experience blessings. Now, in my marriage, everything always just comes easily. Right, honey? She's married to me. She could tell you some stories. But I will say, I am so thankful and grateful and blessed by our marriage because we have worked through and we will continue to work through incredibly difficult things. And the further that you work through issues with one person in your life, the greater the sense of intimacy that you have with that person. The more important that relationship becomes to you. Look, if you've been married for one year, I'm sorry, but you don't know nothing about love yet. Until you've had some really good blow-up fights and some really good makeups, you just haven't tasted the full depth of love yet. And you can't experience it until you've gone through some of the difficult times. So Boaz, he was a guy who, he, he worked through the difficult times. He stayed where he was supposed to be. He stayed in the land of promise and God blessed him. And so as Ruth is there and Naomi, she, she's older. She's not going to collect uh, the, the leftover crops, but that's something that Ruth is gonna do to serve her. And she's going and she's collecting the crops and Boaz takes notice of her. Boaz, Boaz is a good man and he's kind of in charge and he says to the other workers, that foreign girl, you guys better not touch her or harm her. And he protects her and he provides and he begins to, and he says, and he says this to her. He says, I've heard all that you've done for my family members. I've heard all that you've done for Naomi. And it's incredible because it is pretty incredible to say, I'm gonna forsake the possibility of future marriage and I'm gonna go to this other land to make sure that you're taken care of. And Boaz noticed that character in Ruth. And so he made sure that she had plenty that she had enough to bring home to Naomi, that she was taken care of. And she caught his eye a little bit. And as Ruth and Boaz were talking, as, as Ruth and Naomi were talking about Boaz, it came up that he is what is called our kinsman redeemer. He's a close relative. He's someone who could buy the land that we, that is our family's land. And he can restore store it back to us. And this is a contextual thing that's very far from our culture. But I want you to understand that this was, this was a common principle in Israel. That if you had a brother who passed away and did not have an heir, what was considered common practice is that you would redeem that brother by purchasing his assets and providing an heir for him. 
And so Boaz was one of those relatives that was close enough that would take Ruth as a wife and provide an heir for Elimelech's line. And so they, they reached this point where Naomi said, you need to go and you need to just start the conversation with Boaz. Like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to him. It's this one night where they're working on the grain at night and they do it at night because the wind picks up and it blows the chafe away at night. And so it's the right time. And so he's going to be tired. He's going to be sleeping out there where they prepare the grain. And you go and you lay down next to him. And in verse nine, we'll put this up on the screen. As, he, as she lay down to him, next to him that night, he woke up startled because all of a sudden there's a woman laying next to him. And he said, who are you? And she, said, she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Now that doesn't sound like a marriage proposal to us, but I want you to understand that's what was happening. Spread your covering over your maid. A covering had to do with authority and responsibility and protection. And she was asking, will you bring, us into your, will you bring me into your family? For you are a close relative. And he understood what she was asking. But I want to tell you that in our day, it's still almost a little bit surprising when a woman makes the first move. In this day, this was even bigger of a move. And there, there's that moment where when you put yourself out there for someone and there's a breath between what gets said next and you wonder what they're going to say, where you're like, all my emotions are on the line and I can't, I can't make them want this, but all I can do is tell them that I want this. And I wonder if you can remember that anxiety and that feeling of saying, okay, here's what I want. How do you feel about it? You know, looking back over my wife and I's uh, love story, there, there's a couple things that we like to um, continually rehearse from, from our early history. One of them is that I like to uh, hold her over her head that, you know, the first time I saw her, it's not that it was love at first sight so much because it was like she was holding her boyfriend's hand at my first sight with her. And it's only been 22 years. I'm not still holding on to that. But um, it's, that's one of the things that we, we, we talk about. One of the things uh, that we talk about that first summer as we uh, were getting to know each other and the summer was wrapping up and I was doing an internship at Dover, Ohio, her, her home church. I was going to be heading back to school in Georgia uh, in, in the fall. And there's this one night at the pool uh, where we were with the youth ministry and I worked with the middle school kids. And so these middle school boys are trying to drown me in the water and I'm throwing them around. It was one of those times where you just like, you, you know when you feel someone's eyes just like burning a hole in the back of your head? And I, I just felt that. And so I turned around and Tia's standing by this white picket fence, just like looking at me. I mean, she was looking, all right? And when our eyes made contact, this is, this is just literally like what her body did. She went, And I was like, okay, there's something going on there. And I think she knew she was caught, um, but she, she came and talked to me that night. And uh, this is what she holds over my head, that she made the first move. She, she just put it out there. She said, this is how I feel. And then there's that moment where it's like, how does the other person feel? Because I can't, like, you can't make anyone feel something. You just have to hope that they want the same thing. And I'll leave you in suspense about how that worked out. But there's that reality that it's like, you can feel something, but the other person has to feel it too. Boaz's response 
was I'm gonna, he's like, I can't, I can't do anything about this now because there's a relative who actually has the first right to redeem you. But tomorrow, I'm taking care of business. And he did. And this is one of the things about Boaz with his story. Boaz was a man of integrity. He didn't just try to, try to cheat the system, but he went to the other person. And I'm sure that his heart sank a little as he went to this other, other relative and was like, hey, do you want to redeem Naomi and Elimelech's land? And, and the other relative was like, yes, I do. And he was probably like, oh. He said, but do you know that if you do this, you have to redeem Ruth, who's a Moabite woman? And the other guy was like, whoa, I'm already married and my wife probably won't like that. So that's a no for me. You go ahead. And in Ruth's proposal to Boaz, there's there's an interesting piece because with her being a Moabite woman, most Israelite men would be like, no way. No way am I marrying outside of our, our countrymen. No way would I do that and bring that dishonor. And so Boaz, why, why was this a non-issue for Boaz? There's an interesting part of his story that, that you, you could have missed if you didn't catch all the biblical connections. But Boaz's great-grandmother, it's somewhere between one to four greats in there. We don't have the exact pieces of that genealogy. But one of the things that his family would have taken with pride, which I apologize, this is a weird statement, but they would have had pride in it, is that his great-grandmother is considered to be one of the most noble of all prostitutes. Kind of a weird statement, but his great-grandmother was Rahab, a Canaanite woman from Jericho. That when the Hebrew people sent spies in to Jericho, she hid them because she placed her faith in God. And so Boaz grew up hearing about his lineage, hearing about the faith of this Canaanite woman. And do you see how God was perfectly positioning pieces for Ruth who would have come into the promised land saying, this might be the promised land for other people, but it's not the promised land for me because all that's here for me is taking care of Naomi, who I love. There won't be worldly riches. I won't be well provided for. I'll just have to collect leftover grain and that will be my life, but that will honor God. And I want to honor my mother-in-law and my late husband. And so I'm going to do that. But God was positioning things to open a door that there would be a man who was not just perfect for, for her, but he had the understanding that God will work through a Canaanite's faith. And God will work through a Moabite's faith when they turn their heart to the one true God. And it's this beautiful picture of God lining everything up. And so Ruth, who needed a redeemer, she had no control over the situation. She had to have someone who had the right bloodline, who had the power and had the desire to restore the connection and bring her back into family. Band, if you guys make your way up, I'm gonna begin to wrap this thing up. A kinsman redeemer was that person who had the financial ability, the power, the relationship, and the desire to to redeem a family member who was lost to death or sold themselves into slavery. They could redeem the person and redeem the land and bring them back and give them an inheritance and a hope. And so Boaz did this. And I want you to see just how far God took the faith of this Moabite woman and the important place that he gave her in history. Because not only did she get to marry Boaz, who had wealth and position and power and respect in the community, and it gave Naomi a much safer home, but she did have an heir that honored her late husband. And that child's name was Obed. 
And Obed had a, Obed had a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son whose name was David. And David would reign as king over Israel. A Moabite woman's great grandson. But bigger than the fact that her heir would reign on the throne as king, she became a part of the genealogy of the Messiah herself, himself. A woman who surely felt like she was just lost in the ways, no control over where her life would go, but she could control how she honored God in her life. God opened up doors. And God provided a redeemer. And the story of Ruth and the story of redemption that we find in Ruth, it's a foreshadowing to help you better understand the story of Jesus. It's something that happened that God used to prepare his people to understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we don't deserve the love that God extends to us. We could never earn it. We could never force God's hand. But God so loved us that he moved towards us when we could never move towards him. That we have a redeemer who wants to restore us to God's family in the same way that Boaz restored Ruth. God who wants to provide hope when there is no hope that we could earn on our own. I'll wrap up with this thought. One of the things that I, I was thinking of, uh, <laughs> when I first got connected to some of the schools in the area, I, I went through some difficult times where some of the principals were like, not real happy with me because my kids are passing out church invitations at school and that's apparently a problem for some of them and I strongly disagreed with them when they told me that we couldn't do that and it created some tension but over time they they saw that our heart for the schools was good and created really good relationships so eventually I, I had this conversation with one of the principals where the principal who wanted to keep me far away from the school said Paul I want you to volunteer here as much as you can because so many of our students they just don't have positive interactions with men. I mean, some of our schools don't do daddy-daughter dances because so few daddies are involved with their daughters. And there's a whole generation of children that are growing up with no expectation of a man being involved. And it can create tension when they see it and I think there's so many people who are worried, well, if we have a daddy-daughter dance, it's going to alienate someone. Or if we let parents be involved and they see a dad being a dad at a school, it's going to make the kids who don't have dads realize what they don't have, and that's going to hurt them. And speaking as someone whose dad wasn't terribly involved, I remember as a kid, when I saw a dad who was doing what a dad was supposed to do, I was like, I don't have that, but that's what I'm going to be. So my kids have had to deal with, like, when we had field day at Diplomat Elementary School, and my kids will tell you about the pain of this, when I see them across the field of all hundreds of their friends, I will be like, Aaliyah, I love you so much. You're my wonderful child. You're the joy of my life. And she's grimacing right now because she's used to it, and it torments her, and it embarrasses her. 
But I want to tell you, like, I do that for them, but I also do that because I know that there's a kid like me that is looking and saying, okay, what is a man supposed to be like? Because even the things that you think are lost, I believe can be found again. Even the things that you don't have right now, that as you follow God's ways, you can, you can redeem those things back into your life. And if there's a relationship that's missing between you and a father, by being a good father, you can experience that again. You can experience what you missed. If you've walked through a broken marriage and you're trying to start a new one by honoring God in this new time or maybe in this season of singleness, you can redeem what was broken and have something better that's ahead of you. But it's going to require the faith to see that I'm not trapped. I'm not changing my name from Naomi to Mara because I've experienced pain. God has great things ahead as I honor him in the Christ will redeem and restore what has been broken and what has been stolen in the past. We pray for you. Father, I pray for the people who are hurting or walking through that famine season or feel like there's been things that have been stolen from their life that could never be returned, that you would redeem, that you would restore as they walk in your ways. And if we have to go through a season where we we, we plant and we work fields in the midst of famine where it just seems like nothing's happening. Give us the faith and the determination to see that you will bring about a harvest in due time. That as we walk in your ways, we will experience your goodness on this earth because you are a good father who restores and redeems for Boaz and for your children. And we are grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing?